All right, well, good morning, everybody. It is a pleasure to see you guys on Easter Sunday here at Redemption Church. My name is Reggie, and I'm one of the elders, one of the pastors here at Redemption. And this morning, we are celebrating Resurrection Sunday. We're celebrating the resurrection of the magical Easter bunny that lays pastel eggs and leaves chocolate replicas of himself or herself all over the place. Not really, right? We're here here to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has defeated death, who has gained victory over Satan, sin, and death for all time. And that's why we're here this morning, to celebrate and to talk about the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just this past Friday, we were here for a Good Friday service where we read through Matthew 26 and 27, talked about the crucifixion of Jesus, whose death on the cross was an atoning sacrifice for our sins, whose death on the cross satisfied God's wrath toward us and toward our sin. And today we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as he's guaranteed victory over Satan, sin, and death for all time. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus as it assures us that we are made right before God because we serve a risen and a living Savior who intercedes on our behalf, who will come again one day that we might see the ultimate fulfillment of that victory over Satan, sin, and death for all time. Amen. And having said that, I can probably pray and we can be done and we can go home, but that's not what's going to happen. I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about some of the implications of the resurrection for our lives. And you should know that every preacher dreams of preaching on Easter Sunday morning, right? So if I'm still going about two hours from now, somebody throw a shoe at me. Not really. I'm not going to preach that long, but I, I do want to take a few minutes and look at God's word, look very specifically at some of the implications of the resurrection for our lives. I won't keep you long. I won't talk too much. It's my goal not to bore you. Instead, it's my goal to point us to Jesus, to lift Jesus high, that we might hear from him in this place, and that our hearts and lives might be changed because we met with Jesus and because we met with Jesus alone. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us. Um, And then in a second, we're going to get going. We're going to look at some scripture. And we're going to talk about some of the implications of the resurrection for our lives. So let's pray. Holy Father, the weight of this moment and the weight of today and the weight of what we're celebrating is not lost on me. God, your scripture tells us that if the resurrection is not true, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we of all people are to be pitied and our preaching and our worship and our lives are in vain. But God, we're here to worship and to celebrate because Jesus did rise from the dead, because Jesus did guarantee victory, because Jesus made a way for us to be right with you. And so God, this morning as I stand on this stage and I talk and I talk about your word and as we read your scripture, God, I pray that you would move me completely out of the way and that you would lift Jesus high. God, your word tells us that as Jesus is lifted high, people are brought to you. And so, God, I pray that we would see Jesus, that Jesus would be lifted high and worshiped, and our lives would be changed because of Jesus. God, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of the gospel, that good news would be heard, that hearts and lives would be drawn to you. God, I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 
Let me read Matthew chapter 28, verses uh, 1 through 15. I believe it'll be up here on the screen. It's the story of the resurrection in Matthew's gospel. This is what it says. Now, after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to your governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. That's the story of the resurrection in Matthew chapter 28. The stone was rolled away. Jesus walked out of the tomb. Mary, several Marys show up and are witnesses to the resurrection. Jesus instructs them to tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. And there's a um, conspiracy afoot to suppress this story of Jesus being raised from the dead. If we flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is Paul's treatise on the resurrection. It's Paul examining this resurrection story, the reality of it, the truth of it. And 1 Corinthians 15 ends with this statement after Paul has spent 57 verses talking about the reality of the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection. Paul closes with this Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says that because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your work is not in vain. Several years ago, I was in seminary at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and I was living here in Augusta, but going to seminary in Atlanta and commuting every now and then to New Orleans. And in January of 2003, I was in New Orleans with Jeremy Carr. Some of you know Jeremy, who used to be here at Redemption and now lives in Charlotte. But Jeremy and I were there. And the night that we were there, the night before our classes started, the LSU Tigers were playing in the, in the um, Sugar Bowl at the Superdome. And if they won the game, they were going to be the national champions. And so we drove into town that day. We went down to the French Quarter because every restaurant, every bar in downtown New Orleans was showing the game, all over New Orleans was showing the game because LSU was playing. 
And if LSU won, like I said, they were going to be the national champions, and they did win. And I'll never forget the celebration that happened after they won. The entire Superdome emptied into Bourbon Street. And there were thousands and thousands of other people in New Orleans there to celebrate the victory of the LSU Tigers. And I'm not an LSU fan by any stretch of the imagination. But we went out and we got in the middle of the crowd and there's 100,000 people moving across the French Quarter of New Orleans. And once you got in the crowd, you couldn't get out. You just had to go where the crowd went. And so Jeremy and I were caught up in the celebration. We were high-fiving people going, yeah, we did it. We won. And so we moved all over New Orleans that night just right in the middle of the celebration. It was the largest celebration of anything I've ever seen, been a part of, been an eyewitness to. It was crazy. And the next morning I got up, I went to class, and that celebration was just a memory. There were no lasting implications on my life from that celebration. It was a memory, it was an experience, it's something that I'll talk about for years, but there were no implications for me. And it is certainly right And good for us to be here this morning remembering and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We of all people have a reason to celebrate and rejoice because Matthew 28 that we just read says that Jesus rose from the grave exactly like he said he would. And the world's attempts to minimize and suppress that story are in vain. This story, our story, the story of God redeeming the whole world to himself, of making all things right, of fighting for his people, of going out for his glory, this story will not be suppressed. And so it's good that we celebrate and remember. But celebrating and remembering alone is not quite enough. This story has real and good and solid implications for our life. And like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we need to recognize those implications. 1 Corinthians 15, like I said, is a major doctrinal treatise on the resurrection. Read it. It's an incredible chapter. Brent told me this week that it's his, one of his favorite books in all of Scripture. It's an incredible chapter. And Paul concludes that treatise on the resurrection with a call, a call to action, a call to be changed, and a call to a new lifestyle. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, and even though he uses the word brothers there, it's, this is a call for all of us, men and women alike. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul gives us three very clear implications from the resurrection. Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We have not properly understood the, rex- the resurrection of Jesus Christ if we think that the resurrection calls us to religious celebration and remembrance alone. The empty tomb is meant to call us to a very specific way of life, to a new lifestyle. The resurrection is not just something we remember, the resurrection is something we live every day. 
It affects and informs our relationships with our spouse, our neighbors, our family, our friends, our coworkers, our fellow students, whoever. It affects and informs how and where we spend money. It affects and informs how we prioritize things in our life. The implications of the empty tomb affects and informs every area of our life. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the very first thing he says is to be steadfast and immovable because Jesus rose from the dead. He calls us to a lifestyle of unusual stability. Have you ever tried to move something that is immovable? Something too heavy for you to lift, something too large for you to move. I'm reminded of YouTube fail videos. You guys with me? Or America's Funniest Home Videos, if you're not a YouTube person. You can go out and you can see these videos where people are trying to pull a stump out of the ground, right? Or, or pull a bush from the ground. And so they'll tie um, the bush to the back of the truck and take off as fast as they can, right? And nine times out of ten, the bumper gets ripped off the truck and the, and the stump ends up staying right where it was to begin with. Paul calls us to a life that is steadfast and immovable, like that stump that doesn't move. So it forces us to ask ourselves the question, are our lives, is your life anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or are you blown about by the winds of circumstances, blown around by the difficulties of relationships, blown around by the harsh realities of life in a fallen world, blown around by disappointment, blown around by temptation? Are you steadfast and immovable, or are you blown about? Are you steadfast in the gospel? Here is how and why we can be steadfast and immovable. The empty tomb teaches us that God is faithful. Everything he promises, he will do. Matthew 28 reminds us of that. Jesus rose from the grave exactly like he said he would. And that promise goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God first promised a victorious Savior, when God promised that the scourge of sin and death would be rectified by a Messiah. We live in a world that will not be faithful to you. Our world is fallen and wrecked by sin. Your dearest, best friends will fail you. Your spouse will fail you. Institutions of man will fail you. Your dreams will die. But Jesus will never, ever, ever fail you. He is faithful to do what he said. He's faithful to everything that he's promised. And the empty tomb is proof of that. Not only is God faithful to his promises, he's the only one who has the power to deliver everything he's ever promised to begin with. Have you ever made a promise, noble as it was, that you wanted to deliver on, but you just weren't able to keep, right? The answer to that question for all of us is yes. We've all had that experience. Just this past week, a friend of mine texted me every day before lunch and said, can you do lunch today. And I said, no, I can't do lunch today. I can do it tomorrow. And that went on for three days in a row. I had every intention of keeping that meeting, but it just didn't happen. We all have that experience, no matter how great or small that it may be. But there's no limit to the power of God. And I can't think of anything that is a more magnificent demonstration of God's power to deliver what he said he would than by defeating death. Who can defeat death? Jesus did. Jesus very literally walked out of his grave having defeated death. 
Do you ever feel that life is too big, too overwhelming, too confusing, too confounding? Well, the truth of the matter is we serve a Savior who is powerful enough to deal with those things. And there's power in our Savior. There's power in Jesus. The open tomb teaches us that not only is God faithful and not only is God powerful, but he's willing to fight for us. He's willing to go out on our behalf and do something for us that we could never do for ourselves. Who of us could stand before God and say, based on what I've said, based on what I've done, based on what I've chosen to do, based on what I've desired, I deserve to be accepted by you, Jesus. None of us can say that. Not a one of us can say that. But God was willing to give the gift of life to us as arrogant, rebellious, and self-righteous people. God controlled the events of human history, the forces of nature, so that when he was ready, his son would come, live a perfect life, would die a substitutionary death for us on the cross, and would rise again, conquering death. Because God is willing to save. You have reason to stand. You do not need to give way to fear and doubt. You don't have to yield to temptation. You can stand on the rock saying, my God is faithful. My God is powerful. My God is willing to save. And the resurrection is proof of that. We can stand in the truth and the power of the gospel, not being swayed by the winds and the circumstances around us, but standing firm in the truth of the gospel. So that when your marriage is falling apart, you can be immovable and steadfast in the truth of the gospel, knowing that God is faithful and powerful and willing to bring restoration and healing. When your finances are falling apart, when you give way to temptation constantly, when the world around you seems dreary and overwhelming, you can stand firm, steadfast, and immovable in the power of Jesus Christ because of the resurrection. We can be immovable and steadfast in the truth of the gospel. The reality of the fact is that that is a truth that is real for believers. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. But the reality of the fact is that when you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you have met Jesus and given your life to him, the reality of the fact that you can be immovable and steadfast because God is faithful and powerful and willing changes everything. There's no part of your life that the gospel doesn't inform or affect in some way. The resurrection is proof that God did it, that God is faithful, powerful, and willing. And the resurrection is proof that in the gospel we can stand firm knowing that God has done something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, and it changes everything. Not only does Paul call us to be steadfast and immovable in the truth of the gospel, demonstrated by the power of Jesus and his resurrection. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, to call us to always be abounding in the work of the Lord because the resurrection is true. Paul calls us to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul calls us to go out for others just like Jesus went out for us. Matthew 28, we read through verse 15 earlier, but Matthew 28 is really about a call to action because of the resurrection. The first 15 
verses of Matthew 28 are a record of what happened at the resurrection, of some witnesses to it, and Jesus saying, tell my brothers to come meet me in Galilee. It's a record of what happens. But how does Matthew 28 end? Matthew 28 ends with what we call the Great Commission. It's a call to action. Jesus says, because all authority has been given to me, and the resurrection is proof of that, go make disciples. The resurrection in Matthew 28 is directly tied to action. Brent's going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reiterates that and says, because of the resurrection, you can always be abounding in the work of the Lord. To abound in the work of the Lord is to pursue the very thing that Jesus sent his disciples to pursue, that others would be made his disciples as well. The resurrection cannot be separated from this call to action. The resurrection changes our lifestyle, and our lifestyle becomes one of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's the mission of the church. That's why we exist. This lifestyle of action, this lifestyle of going out on behalf of others is really a characteristic of the kingdom of God, right? Stay with me. We've been moving through the book of Matthew Uh, It seems like forever. I don't know when we started in the book of Matthew, but in the next two weeks, we'll be closing down the book of Matthew and moving on to something else. And over and over throughout the book of Matthew, we've emphasized how Matthew is interested in showing us that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised king from the Old Testament that will sit on the throne of David forever. And we've talked about how Jesus has come to establish this kingdom and how Jesus is pointing everyone around him to a new understanding of the kingdom. A kingdom that's different than what everybody was expecting, but a kingdom that's far greater than they could have ever imagined. And it's established not for those who deserve it, but for those who don't. And it's for those not who think they are worthy, but for those who know they are not. It's established for the poor and the needy and the blind and the lame, for the outcast, for the sojourner, for the refugee, for the homeless, for the Samaritan and the Gentile and the Jew. This past week in Christianity Today, you can access it online, and I would encourage you to look this article up, right? It's an article written by a guy named Daniel Darling, and this is what it was entitled. Easter's blow to my social apathy. Only Jesus can offer forgiveness both for the evil of history and the evil in my heart. I would encourage you to look up this article and read it because it sort of wrecked me this week. Look it up. But this story, this article is about how the resurrection and the story of Easter has the direct implication on our lives to speak and act for those who can't speak and act for themselves, for the unborn child, for immigrants and refugees, for minorities, and how speaking for those without a voice actually reflects to the world the kingdom of God. And I quote from this article where Um, Daniel Darling says this, Easter is an announcement to the world that there is another story, something more than the cycle of violence, inhumanity, and hatred that corrupts every corner of the cosmos. Christianity assigns worth based not on utility or beauty, but on every human's unique status as an image bearer of the Almighty. Christ defeated the enemy, and that unleashes a spirit-led army in every generation to be healing agents for the world. It's almost like maybe he read 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where Paul says, always be abounding in the work of the Lord. 
It's the gospel. It's the truth of the resurrection, the victory won by Jesus on the cross that our world needs to hear, that we need to hear, to hear so that the gospel might change hearts and lives so that disciples are made, and the disciples are made who make disciples who become an army that unleashes the truth of the gospel in the world so that the gospel advances so that lives are changed and so that those who can't speak for themselves have someone to fight for them just like Jesus fought for us on the cross. Always be abounding in the work of the Lord because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we can be steadfast and immovable in the gospel, knowing that it's true and it affects all of our life. Because of the resurrection, we can always be abounding in the work of the Lord because the resurrection leads to that very thing, the advancement of the gospel, going out for those who can't go out for themselves. Finally, in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, Paul says this in reference to the resurrection of Jesus. And in reference to the ongoing work of the gospel, he closes by saying, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Guys, I'm going to get gut level honest with you for a minute. I've been involved in church ministry for a long time. I'm 41 years old. I know I don't look it. That was a joke. I'm 41. I've been involved in ministry in some form or fashion since I was 19 years old as a volunteer in youth ministry. And over a decade ago, I helped to plant this church. And there have been many, many tiresome days and sleepless nights where I have thought that the work of the gospel is in vain. There have been many days where I've simply wanted to walk away and be done. The perpetrators of evil in our world seem to far outnumber the agents of the gospel. And even in our church, I've seen marriages crumble. I've seen people seemingly walk away from the faith. I've seen fellow Christians intentionally belittle and hurt one another. I've seen Christians refuse to believe the gospel in every area of their lives. I've seen far too few baptisms and conversions. And I've experienced my own failures to sin and to anger. And there are days that I think the work of the gospel is in vain. You've probably had that same experience. But Paul says, because of the resurrection, because Jesus rose from the dead, our labor on behalf of Christ is not in vain. In the Lord, our labor is not in vain. In vain. And that in the Lord part of that sentence is pretty important, right? Because our labor outside of God's ways and God's purposes and for God's reasons, that labor is definitely in vain. But in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. It's doing something, it's accomplishing something that we may not ever see. We may not know it, we may not see the fruit of it. But that doesn't matter. Because the resurrection says that labor is not in vain. Because Jesus rose from the dead and defeated Satan, sin, and death for all time. And that truth, that story that will not be suppressed, anytime that story is proclaimed, anytime that story is repeated, it is not done in vain. The resurrection must change our worldview in light of the fact that our labor is not in vain. Paul David Tripp says that the empty tomb of Jesus Christ must be the lens through we look at, through which we look at and interpret 
all of life. The resurrection invests all that God calls us to with meaning and purpose. In this world, there will be suffering. There will be hardship. Both our worship and our labor will at times seem to be in vain, but it's not because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, our labor is not in vain. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can be steadfast and immovable in the gospel. That may be something that's very real to you. That may be something that's not real to you at all. But I want you to hear that Jesus went out on your behalf so that you can be steadfast and immovable in the gospel. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead that you might be rightly related to God and grounded in the gospel so that the winds of this world do not blow us to and fro. Instead, we can stand firm in the gospel and the reality of what Jesus has done for us. Because of the resurrection, we can always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. I'm going to move toward closing, but let me just say this. Our hearts are desperately fickle and wicked. They are easily swayed. And every day, this side of heaven, there is a war being fought in our hearts. It's a war between faith and doubt. It's a war between courage and fear. It's a war between disappointment and hope. It's a war between temptation and righteousness. It's a war between believing the gospel and allowing it to affect every area of our life or not. And so the call for us this morning is to root our heart in this, that God is faithful, God is powerful, God is willing. God conquered sin and death on the cross and rose from the grave that we might know him and be rightly related to him. And because of that, you can stand with stability. Because of that, you can have courage to go out on behalf of others and proclaim the gospel and speak for those who can't speak for themselves. And because Jesus rose from the dead, our labor is not in vain. And as the gospel is proclaimed, it is doing something. It is changing hearts and lives, and it has the ability to change our world because of what Jesus did. The call on our lives this morning is to believe the gospel in light of the fact that the resurrection is real. And Jesus did something. Jesus rose from the grave. And the call on our life is to believe and live it. The call on our life is maybe to believe it for the first time. Maybe the call for you this morning is to realize that you've never believed that Jesus did something on your behalf. You've never given your life to Christ and said, God, I I recognize that apart from Jesus' death, I am not right with you and I need to be made right with you. If that's something you've never done and you want to do, by all means, let's do it today. Right, I'm going to step down off the stage in a second and you can grab me and we can talk about what it means to live in light of the fact that Jesus died and rose for you for the first time. Let's do that. Let's take care of that. Maybe the call for your life this morning is to believe it again in repentance and faith. Maybe you do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but maybe your life doesn't look like it's grounded in the gospel. Maybe you're blown to and fro. Maybe you're not abounding in the work of the Lord. Maybe you struggle with whether or not your labor is in vain. I don't know. But the call on our lives this morning is to believe 
and the resurrection to believe in the gospel that Jesus rose from the dead and did something on our behalf and we can believe it and we can live it. I'm going to move into a time of response. And during this time of response, I beg you to deal with the reality of the fact that God did something for you. And for you, maybe that looks like sitting right where you are and reflecting on what you've heard this morning. Maybe it means sitting where you are and praying because of what you've heard this morning and because of what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Maybe it means grabbing the person that you came to church with this morning and talk to them about what God is doing and working in your hearts and in your lives. Maybe it means standing up and singing along with the band as they come back in just a second and lead us to worship through singing. Maybe for you it means to worship through giving. There's a giving basket in the back. And we're going to celebrate communion together. We celebrate communion together every Sunday at Redemption because by it we are remembering what Christ has done for us and we are proclaiming to one another that we believe the truth of the gospel and the truth of the resurrection. In Luke chapter 24, there's this story that happens after the resurrection. A couple of Jesus' disciples are walking on a road. They've left Jerusalem, and they're walking to this village called Emmaus. And Jesus walks up to them, right? And they're talking about all the events that have gone on in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? And so they explain to him what they're talking about. And Jesus takes what they're talking about and shows how all of Scripture points to what happened in Jerusalem, how all of Scripture points to Jesus' death on the cross and the reality of the resurrection. And after Jesus does that, this is what's happening. This is what happens. They get to where they're going, to Emmaus. And Luke 24 says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he, being Jesus, acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon." Then they told him what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. As we come together to break bread, as we come together to celebrate communion, to tear off the bread and dip it in wine or juice, let's meet Jesus in this place. Let's remember what Christ has done for us. Let's proclaim to one another that we believe it. If you're here and you can't remember and you can't proclaim what Jesus has done for you, then I would encourage you not to come and take communion. But as believers and as a way to celebrate, as a way to remember, let's come and let's meet Jesus in the breaking of bread. Let's tear the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. Remember what Christ has done for us and proclaim to one another that we believe it, that the reality of the resurrection is true and that it changes everything. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that this morning we can be reminded of the reality of the sacrifice that you made on behalf of us on the cross and just as much the reality 
of your resurrection. God, not only did you pay our debt that we could not pay, God, you rose from the dead to seal that victory forever. And God, because of that resurrection, all of our life has meaning and purpose and is changed. And so, God, let us experience the reality of that change. Let us meet with you in this place. God, draw us to yourself. God, I pray that Jesus would continue to be lifted high, that we might be drawn to you, that we might meet you in this place through Jesus. And God, I ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen.